Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 89 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the death of chief designer Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. Sergei Pavlovich Korolev was the mastermind behind the Soviet space program. He was often referred to by the initials of his first two names, S.P., or by the title of Chief Designer. For those on the Soviet space program, there was no higher authority. Korolev had the reputation of being a man of the highest integrity, but also of being extremely demanding. His power, influence, and responsibilities during the 1950s and 60s were all-encompassing. Not only was he in charge of all space-related issues, he was also in charge of some of the design of rockets for military purposes. He oversaw the design and testing of communications and surveillance satellites too. Although he delegated responsibility for each program to trusted designers in separate engineering bureaus, his workload was enormous. He was the one responsible for all the programs, including the Soviet equivalent of NASA, which was called the Ministry for Medium Machine Building. Korolev's single-handed mastery in all these different fields was not publicly acknowledged, but it never seemed to bother him. If he had been known publicly, that might have interfered with his work. He appreciated more than most the Kremlin's fears that an attempt might be made on his life by the enemies of the Soviet Union if his identity and importance to the Soviet space program were ever revealed. In fact, the Soviets were so concerned with his safety that wherever Korolev traveled, a so-called secretary was always with him, and the secretary was really a bodyguard. Korolev was a very profound thinker, but he was tough. He did not suffer fools gladly. He had the ability to silence a person with the smallest gesture of a hand. Everyone around him was on pins and needles, afraid of making a wrong move and invoking his wrath. He was treated like a czar. But it was not always like this for Korolev. Much of his life was filled with struggle, hardship, pain, and suffering. It is little wonder why he only lived 59 years. I want to begin by covering Korolev's early life. Some of this information was covered way back in episode 6, so this first part is a little review with some additional details that have not been covered yet. Korolev was born in Zythomir in the present-day Ukraine on January 12, 1907. His father, Pavel, was a Russian, and his mother, Maria, was Ukrainian. Three years after his birth, his parents separated due to financial difficulties. Korolev's mother told him his father had died, and Korolev never saw him again. Korolev grew up in Neshin under the care of his maternal grandparents. His mother had wanted higher education, so she was frequently away attending women's higher education courses in Kiev. As a child, Sergei was stubborn, persistent, and argumentative. 
He was a lonely child with few friends. He experienced a lot of bullying and teasing from other children. Perhaps this is what motivated him to become a good student. He excelled in math and other subjects. He also began to read at a very early age. In 1915, his mother was officially divorced from Korolov's father, and in 1916, she remarried Grigory Balanin, an electrical engineer with a German education attending the Kiev Polytech University. Korolov's stepfather was a good influence on Sergei. In 1917, the family moved to Odessa after Korolov's stepfather got a job with the regional railway. In 1919, there were severe food shortages, and Korolov suffered from a bout of typhus. In 1922, as Odessa was still recovering from the Russian Revolution, Sergei passed qualifying exams for a senior year at the Odessa Professional Construction School, which was an equivalent to a community college in the West. Here he met his future wife, Kesnia Vincentini. At the time, Sergei was already interested in aviation, and in 1923 he joined the Society of Aviation and Aerial Navigation of the Ukraine and Crimea. By joining the Odessa Hydroplane Squadron, he had his first flying lesson and also had many opportunities to fly as a passenger. In 1924, Korolev personally designed a glider called the K-5, which was accepted by the Society of Aviation as a construction project. Also in 1924, Korolev transferred to the Kiev Polytech Institute, where he joined a group of glider enthusiasts. He was allowed to fly the training glider on which he worked, but ended up with two broken ribs. Two years later, before his 20th birthday in 1926, Sergei Korolev moved to Moscow to study at the prestigious Bauman Institute, which was the rough equivalent of MIT in the U.S. Until 1929, Korolev studied specialized topics in aviation at the school. He lived with his family, who had moved to Moscow in what were typical but crowded conditions. In addition to his studies, Korolev had many opportunities to fly gliders and powered aircraft, and he reveled in the experience. He also designed a glider in 1928 and flew it in a competition the next year. During 1929, the Communist Party had decreed that the education of engineers be accelerated to meet the country's urgent need for their skills. Korolev could obtain a diploma by producing a practical aircraft design, and had the design completed and approved by the end of the year. His advisor was none other than Andrei Tupolov. Korolev graduated from Bauman in 1929. In 1930, he finally earned his pilot's license. During that year, he became interested in the possibilities of liquid-fueled rocket engines. At this time, his interest was primarily in aircraft. He saw the potential for use of these engines to propel airplanes. But one day, while he was flying around, he looked up and wondered what was beyond the point of where he could take his plane. 
and how he could get there. This was probably where his interest in space began. In 1931, he was finally wed to Kezhnev Vincentini, a woman he had been courting for seven years. He had proposed marriage to her much earlier, but she had declined because she wanted a higher education. Also in 1931, he joined the Central Aero and Hydrodynamics Institute, and in July 1932, Korolev was appointed chief of Jet Propulsion Research Group, and that was called GIRD, G-I-R-D. It was one of the earliest state-sponsored centers for rocket development in the Soviet Union. In 1933, the group was reorganized into the Jet Propulsion Research Institute, where Korolev worked as deputy chief of the institute. In 1933, the group accomplished their first launch of a liquid-fueled rocket. And in 1934, Korolev published the work Rocket Flight in the Stratosphere. In April of 1935, Korolev's wife gave birth to their daughter, Natasha. In 1936, they were able to move out of his parents' home and into their own apartment. But Korolev and his wife had careers, and Sergei was always spending long hours at his design office. By now, he was chief engineer at the Jet Propulsion Institute. The team continued their development work on rocketry with particular focus on the area of stability and control. They developed automated gyroscope stabilization systems that allowed stable flight along a programmed trajectory. Korolev personally monitored all key stages of the programs and paid meticulous attention to detail. In 1938, Korolev's good times and success abruptly ended. It was the time of Stalin's great purge. Korolev was arrested by the NKVD. And now the story gets a little more interesting. The following information comes from Alexei Leonov's book, Two Sides of the Moon. Leonov and Yuri Gagarin talked with Korolev a few days before he died. This is how Korolev described his experience during the darkest days of his life. A car arrived late one night in April 1938 at his apartment. He was bundled into the car so quickly that he was unable to say a proper goodbye to his three-year-old daughter, Natasha, or to her mother. He described the torture and beatings that followed as he was questioned endlessly by a young member of the secret police. It went something like this. Do you want some water? his interrogator asked. And he said yes. As he was being handed a glass of water, the interrogator smashed the water jug over his head with the taunt, You scientists are so weak, a water jug can make you faint. When it came time for his trial, he was marched along a maze of corridors before being brought to a halt in front of a pair of double doors. The doors opened and he saw at the rear of a brightly lit room a table at which sat three men, all prominent members of the Communist Party. At first, Korolev said he felt relieved. 
because he knew who the men were. In the center was People's Commissar Clement Voroshikov. Later these men, which became known as the Emergency Three, were exposed as having masterminded many of the purges of Stalin's Great Terror. But at the time, Korolov believed Voroshikov would give him a fair trial. It was only when Voroshikov asked Korolov to hand over the document detailing his alleged crimes that Korolov realized a document had been placed in his hand. It was read aloud. He was accused of inflating the cost of reconstructing a building where an agricultural institute had been based in order to set up a new institute for rocket engineering and space technology. Voroshikov asked if he was guilty. When Korolov denied the charges, one of the three men shouted, All you men say you are not guilty. Give him ten years. The so-called trial had lasted less than a minute. Many years later, after Korolov had risen to prominence, someone within the KGB showed him the document laying out the grounds on which he had been condemned. Korolov said he had known those who wrote the document, but he would not say who they were, although there was speculation later that Valentin Glushko, another rocket engineer who went on to become a bitter but highly respected rival of Korolov's, had a hand in it. After his trial, Korolov was sent to a brutal prison camp in far eastern Siberia. Korolov spent months there in midwinter cutting trees and working in the mines. It was backbreaking work. The extremely harsh conditions led to a permanent deterioration in his health. But as the Second World War gathered pace, a call went out for rocket scientists to be recalled to Moscow. One of those responsible for gathering them was Valentin Glushko. Korolov described in vivid detail the morning he left prison. The other prisoners gave him a warm hat, coat, and gloves. He recalled how the huge prison gates had opened and how, as he started walking away in bright sunlight, he looked back and saw all those who had to remain in that awful place. He had no money, but managed to hitch a lift with a passing truck whose driver insisted that he hand over his boots as payments. In return, he was given the driver's ragged shoes. On arriving in Magadan, Korolov found that the last boat of the season had already left for the mainland. The boat later sank in a heavy storm. That was the first in a series of incidents that convinced Korolov he was privileged with some sort of supernatural protection. It was another six months before the shipping lanes would be free of ice and open to navigation once more. Korolov was stranded. He described how he wandered looking from place to place to find a place to sleep as the temperatures sank to minus 40 degrees C. While searching for shelter, he came across a fresh loaf of bread lying on the path between two army barracks where more prisoners were being held before being sent to the gulag. 
He devoured the bread and then managed to smuggle himself into one of the barracks. When he woke the next morning, he asked the prisoners who had thrown a fresh loaf of bread into the street. They laughed. No one in such harsh conditions could afford to throw food away, and there was no bakery nearby. Korolov was not a religious man, but he took it as a further sign that some divine force was protecting him. In order to survive until he could take a ship out of Magadan, Korolov worked as a laborer, helping a carpenter and a cobbler. At the end of May, he took a boat to Nakoda and then boarded a train for Moscow. But by then, he was so ill that he was bundled off the train at Khabarovsk. It was feared he was about to die. His body was swollen with scurvy. His gums were bleeding, and his teeth were falling out. A local took him to a home of an old man, a healer, on the outskirts of town. The old man put Korolov on the back of a cart and drove him into the hills, which now was free of snow. The hills were carpeted with fresh herbs. Barely able to swallow, Korolov chewed some of the tender herbs into until his gums bled. The potent vitamin C from the herbs performed a small miracle. A week later, he was well enough to board a train to Moscow again. When he arrived, however, he was not allowed to return home to his family. He was taken to an isolated building on the banks of the river Yazer, where other outstanding scientists were being held. It was comfortable, but it was a prison nonetheless, where scientists, intellectuals, and engineers were held on the grounds that they were being protected by the state. It was cruel, but it was done to guarantee their safety, because it was known that Nazi Germany had hatched many plots to assassinate leading Soviet scientists and military figures. For the first few years of Korolev's detention, he and the other inmates were not allowed to see their families or friends, even though they could see their homes in the distance if they climbed to the eleventh floor. They could communicate with their loved ones by letter. There were no cells in the prison. The men were accommodated in large dormitories. They were fed well, and in their free time they were allowed to exercise in a fenced-in area they called the monkey place. The group had to dedicate themselves entirely to the war effort. They designed many new rockets, missiles, and aircraft. It was not until the end of 1944 that they were free to return to their families. This concludes Korolev's account of his experience in the Gulag and Penitentiary lasting from 1938 to 1944. In 1945, things began to look better for Korolev. He was commissioned a colonel in the Red Army, and he flew to Germany in September to join other Soviet colleagues gathering information on the V-2 rocket, 
which had been developed by the von Braun team during the war. Von Braun himself was already in the United States. When German technical specialists snatched from the East German Soviet zone were brought to the Soviet Union to work on missile technology, one group worked under Korolev. But by 1950, the Germans were being sent back to their homeland and Korolev was leading the effort to redesign, build, and test the world's first ICBM, the R-7. Korolev believed that the World War II V-2 missile liquid propellant technology could not be extended significantly and preferred to work on his own designs. In 1952, Korolev joined the Soviet Communist Party. It was a tactical necessity if he was to request money from the government for future projects. It took until 1957 for the government to finally declare that Korolev was fully rehabilitated and that the sentence he received was unjust. Later in 1957, the world was awed by the orbiting of the first artificial satellite, Sputnik. Less than two months before that, the R-7, which launched Sputnik, made its first successful test for its intended purpose, carrying a dummy warhead. For the Soviet Communist Party chief Nikita Khrushchev, the urgency was for the military capability. The leap into the space age for the Soviet leadership was useful merely as a publicity stunt to prove the superiority of the Soviet system to capitalism. The Soviet regime was constantly an obstacle to Korolev's plan for the orderly progression of new space capabilities. The Soviet government funded design bureaus that were developing competing designs to Korolev's. In everything from second-generation ICBMs to moon rockets, which created confusion and inadequate funds for everyone, the regime and Khrushchev personally made outrageous demands on the chief designer to meet deadlines for space first, based on political considerations such as speeches before the United Nations or concerns about when the United States would do it. In addition, the Soviets demanded total secrecy for Korolev. Unlike his counterpart in the U.S., Werner von Braun, who became a widely recognized proponent of space exploration through magazines, newspapers, and television in the early 1950s, Sergei Korolev's name was not known outside the circles of the Soviet government, the military, and his colleagues who were involved with the space program until after his death. Although intelligence services in the West knew there was a chief designer, his name was never made public. He was not seen in photographs with the cosmonauts, nor at state ceremonies where awards and medals were bestowed upon those recognized for their contributions. Yet, he was the man most responsible for their successes.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.